so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. My next guest is a fan of Oprah Winfrey, Simon Sinek, and Sarah Blakely. Now, I mean, no wonder she's been focused on alignment and forging her own authentic path in business and in life. And that's exactly why she left the world of management consulting and dove headfirst into the world of sales just over three years ago now. Orla Pollard is the head of sales enablement over at Paddle, and she's my guest this week, people. Now, given how focused she's been on creating true change in her own life, I thought, you know what? It's only fair if I invite her onto the show to talk specifically about how to create true behavioral change in your sales team and as a seller in a recession. Welcome to the show, my friend. What's good? Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I saw a little, you know, a plethora of different people that you follow. So there was there was Simon Sinek, there was Oprah Winfrey, there was Sarah Blakey, but then I saw one which really caught me off guard. 50 Cent. <laughs> what? 50 Cent? Yeah. I didn't know. Are you a big fan of 50 Cent? I may have been when I was younger. I was definitely partial to a 50 Cent album which I did actually find recently in my old CD collection. I did not realize that I followed him on LinkedIn, which is very awkward. Wasn't he arrested recently or something? I'm messing with you. No, I didn't see 50 Cent. I was I was really hoping I'd find something like Kim Kardashian, 50 Cent, <laughs> or I was looking for something a little bit out there, but no, you, you, you're good, my friend. You're good, you're good. But um, listen. My too predictable. No, actually, you you know, who else did you have? You had Bill Gates on there. You had a few names like Sarah Cuddy I haven't heard of and a few others. But no, you weren't predictable. But I was looking for that edge case scenario. I was looking for that guilty yeah. pleasure. No, that's that's only found in the CD collection that actually still exists in my garage. So, What else is in that CD collection that we don't want people to know? Oh, there's a whole range. Like there's full on classical to rap to deep rock, like a bit of everything. So you, back in the day, if I met you back in the day, would you be hanging out listening to hardcore rap? Is that what we're saying here? Uh, Sometimes. Or deep, deep rock. (laughs) Like deep emo rock. Bit of both. (laughs) Really? (laughs) That's so so polar opposite. It's the beat. It's the beat. (laughs) That is so... (laughs) 
is so polar opposite, but I love it. I love it. Now, speaking of change, I know that you studied psychology at uni with a big focus on neuroscience and neuropsychology. And I'm curious, what's one thing that you learned back then that you now use specifically in your role today in enablement? Oh, okay. This is actually an easy one. So the thing I loved about studying psychology and neuroscience was that there was always something, a behavior or a symptom that you saw that someone was doing, like whether it was the way they spoke, whether it was their memory, whether it was where they acted. And you were always trying to trace the root cause of that into something that was happening in their brain that you couldn't see, like a chemical reaction or the way their synapses worked or something. And that's something I use now, which is like what you see is not necessarily the problem that needs addressing. So you should always dig into it and dive into it and try and understand what's causing it rather than treating the the symptom that you can see in front of you. So like don't have an immediate knee jerk reaction to that because you're not going to address it systemically for the rest of the, the time. So that's interesting because I had really bad lower back pain last year or maybe a couple of months ago now. I can't remember, but I remember seeing my physio and she was like, Rav, it's nothing to do really with your lower back. It all boils down to your knees and your flat feet and the more support we need to give for your arch. (laughs) That was the million dollar issue. So how does somebody get to the true problem? A lot of curiosity, a lot of questions. And never really taking the answer that someone gives you for like face value. So there's always like a healthy the amount of skepticism, but maybe that's not quite a positive word. But like I view it as like a lot of hypotheses. So I'm like, okay, that's that's some that's someone's hypothesis about that. Can we prove or disprove it? Like I'm still very much a scientist at heart over anything else. So I'm like, this is my hypothesis for something like with new information, it will really easily change. So you're not kind of deeply held to any one particular belief. It's more like based on the evidence in front of you and what you can see and what you know, like, what do you think the problem might be? And then always interrogating that. Hypothesis. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because I, th- I suppose everybody's got a lens in which they view the world and we can't say it's the truth because it's their truth and maybe that's their hypothesis so we're proving it wrong or right so then okay this is interesting so you said questioning or evolving it yeah okay actually that's a good point that's a very good point or evolving it yeah we don't want to just throw it in the bin we don't want to throw it in the bin so how can somebody within themselves unlock their hypothesis and healthily if that's even a word question themselves and interrogate to gain self-awareness around what's holding them back from whatever it could be. It's really interesting, actually, because I suppose probably like a lot of people nowadays, I have a coach and I've actually gotten a lot of value from that in terms of them asking me questions about things that I believe or maybe I've seen. The thing that they sort of taught me to do, which I quite liked, was when you have a, like, a really strong thought or a really strong belief about something, like kind of write it down. And then test, what do I know that supports that? And Mm -hmm. what could possibly disprove it? Like all these things about imposter syndrome, right? It's like, oh, I might be terrible at communication. It's like, okay, well, what has anyone ever told you you're bad at it? 
has anyone ever told you you need to work on it? Or actually, do people constantly praise the clarity of your slides or your written communication or the phone calls they have with you? Like, which one's actually true and what's the evidence? Like, it's a pros and it's almost like a pros and cons list, right? It's just a slightly scientific version of it. So, yeah. I love that. And then gather more evidence. Ask people, like, is there data that you can use? Is there people you can ask? Are there ways you can test it? Like, just view it as a little bit of fun, a bit of an experiment. I love that. I love the concept of gathering evidence to either break a belief and really support, well, yeah, break a belief and or support a new one that you're trying to embed. I love that. I love that. So, okay, let's take it to now how to do something similar in the world of sales. Because, hey, look, we're all human beings. When I say salespeople, we're actually just talking about human beings, right? So when it comes to making change, you know, for myself in my own life, it boils down to exactly what you said, self-awareness, identifying the issue as the key starting point and really gaining an understanding of the magnitude of it, et cetera, if it's false or true. But for you, when you're doing that in a professional sense for a team of salespeople, what's your go-to process for identifying issues, which is stopping a seller from say quota attainment? So there's a couple of things. Like I think the easy answer that most people say is what does the data tell you? What does the data tell you? which is important and you should definitely do. And as far as possible, like look from quota attainment back, right? All the way through sales conversion for each stage, pipeline generation, et cetera. But also data tells one very specific story. And I truly believe that sales is both an art and a science. And the art part is ask people, <laughs> like ask people what they're struggling with, ask people specific questions like, if you wanted to increase your win rate, what would get in your way? Like we ask people that question every quarter in a QBR. Like, what do you think the thing is that's holding you back? I ask people when I see them in the office or just have one-to-ones, like what's the thing that you want to be able to do differently to help elevate your game as a sales professional? And then also like listen to gong calls, build your own hypotheses of trends that you're seeing and noticing, and then ask people like, it looks like maybe you're struggling with this. Is that fair? Is that true? Or you said that this was your problem. But when I look at the call, actually, you're really good at it. Like some people don't know their own strengths. So building that like constant bank of evidence from conversations, from gong calls, and also backing it up with the data as far as you can, if you're lucky enough to have clean data and lucky enough to have a team that can help you analyze it or the skills to do it yourself and marry those two and see what the trends are. Oh, see, I like this, but then I'm thinking, you know what? Say you've got a seller who mm-hmm. maybe isn't willing to admit they have a problem. Yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're not hitting quota, but they're like, listen, it's not me. It's, it's this. They're blaming external factors, right? That's their hypothesis. Yeah. What's your go-to for handling a seller like that and helping them identify a root cause that's within them versus external variables? The principles of coaching, I think, are really, really important here. And this is where the managers, for me, always come into play quite a lot. It's like, as you say, you tell someone that they're doing something wrong and they can't see it. They're going to say, no, I'm not. What do you know? Like, you're not in front of the customer. You don't know what I'm doing. Say you listen to one of their gone calls and you notice something that actually could have been holding that conversation back. Say it was like there weren't solid next steps, right? You can see that they really weren't set. 
like finally scheduled a call, but there was no urgency, there was no real need, and there was no definition of what that call was actually going to cover. So surprisingly, the customer cancelled it or kept pushing it back. All right. So instead of saying you didn't set correct next steps, instead you could try a more coaching angle of what do you think might have driven that person's desire to actually attend that call? What could you have done at the end of the first call? to make them really interested and engaged and be like dying to attend that next call with you rather than just setting it and then see what the response is. The response might've been, there's nothing I could do. Like if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. And then you can just keep asking questions and give other examples. Like say when X person tried to set a clear agenda, make it clear what they were going to cover, ask for their input. Actually, they have real success in people showing up. They never seem to get delayed. Do you think that's a tactic you could try? Like, why don't you try it on your next call and then let's see how it works. So you're kind of, you're creating an experimental situation with them to build up their evidence of whether something does or doesn't work for them and other ways of doing it. Mm, beautiful. So what I mean- It's such an interesting point. I don't think I've ever met a salesperson who will go, yeah, it's totally me. It's totally my fault. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I don't think I have either. Actually, a few, but I think it does require high levels of self-awareness, humility. And in the world we live in today, that is so much noise in, in the external world and it's so busy. Sometimes it can get cloudy, but I love what you said about asking the right questions to allow somebody to ultimately get to the road that you're trying to take them down, but in an ethical way, not in a Nikki way, right? And also then creating this experimental scenario, which is very cool. And then coming back and really approving or disapproving that hypothesis. I like that, that hypothesis, right? So say the seller comes back and they say, okay, huh, that worked. I'm going to keep continuing it. And they say to you, well, what else inside of my skill set do you think could be improved? I mean, let's say they actually asked this, right? Yeah. What are you seeing right now as some of the core skills that a lot of sellers are lacking in, in a climate like this? I think there's a couple of trends and then one's more of an industry problem. One is knowing really quite deeply why and how like your product, your service, the thing that you are selling adds value to the customer that you're talking to. Like a lot of people might know in general, right, the top level marketing, but actually the storytelling of what the customers told you in your discovery or what you've seen online or what you've seen on their website and how that actually relates to the, the value that your product provides. So we talk about it often at Paddle of how do you relate the emotional argument with the logical argument? So like people buy things for emotional reasons and they justify them with logical reasons. So how do you build the emotional value argument with stories, with social proof, rather than just using the same old case study, every customer, how do you actually pick the right one? And then how do you translate that into something really quantifiable that that person can take back to their board or their C-suite? and actually shows that personal win for them in the context of what their company is trying to achieve rather than completely like misaligned that no one's ever going to end up purchasing because they can't figure out how what you're selling relates to what they're trying to do 
and they're so busy and everyone's brains are so stretched that we don't necessarily, at least I feel this at the moment, like have that mental creativity to figure out how absolutely everything fits together myself. Like people need help. People need the salesperson to help them on that buying journey and help them connect some of those dots. People don't buy things every day, right? Especially right now. And then using that as a way, like secondly, to qualify in or out. Like momentum right now is so key. Time is really precious for salespeople and for the people that are trying to buy. And knowing that value helps you understand whether or not there's actually a deal here and whether or not you could actually make a difference to this company. And then focus your energy on those right customers who probably need a bit more attention. There'll probably be more hurdles to jump, probably a bit more risk aversion going on, like the jolt effect, all of these kind of books really come into play now. Also potentially more layers of that buying committee, like who isn't needing their CFO to sign off a buying decision right now um, and getting interrogated on exactly what value and ROI that's going to provide. So that's really difficult. So what I'm hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is effective storytelling, hmm. teaching customers how to buy, and then also moving somebody from really freeze to a point of fight, right? Meaning not doing yeah. anything versus actually getting them to take action, right? Explaining the cost of inaction versus the ROI. So when it comes to that storytelling piece, I love the fact that you spoke about marrying up the emotion and also the logical argument together. Could you talk me through an example, maybe of Paddle or of a rep that you've seen do this really well and how they did it? It's really interesting because the first few calls, at least when we're looking at our sales process, right? Like the first few calls trying to understand the actual pain, like what's the thing that someone's struggling with? What's the thing that they want to achieve? What's the cost of inaction or the cost of the way that they're doing things now? And what's their personal win to that? And like really paying attention to their body language or how they describe something. Like I think people miss the fact that the way that the words that people use when they describe things are really telling about how much they like physically get angry about something, right? Like how much it actually irks them versus it's something that's like a bit of an inconvenience. So what we tend to do and what our best reps do at Paddle is they use those conversations to understand like back and forth what the actual quantifiable goals are, maybe for the board that year, revenue, cost, risk, whatever it might be. And then what the pains are for them, for their team, for their peers of the way that they're doing things today. And then we're very lucky in that we have quite a clear way to quantify the value of switching to Paddle and using data, but we have to have people buy into that. So it is different. You're showing them that they might be able to save this amount of money here or gain this amount of revenue here but they have to buy into the fact that the way they're doing things today is more expensive or is more painful. And if, if they haven't recognized that pain in themselves and that there's a different way of doing things before you show them those numbers, they just argue with the numbers. That number's wrong. I don't like that number. I don't believe that number. Like that's what ends up happening. And if they, cause they don't want to believe them. They haven't internalized that there's a problem similar to that rep situation we were talking about, right? Like, they don't realize there's a problem. They haven't almost been coached to the point where they've gone, yeah, no, actually, there is a different way of doing this. I understand. Now let's look at actually the impact that that might have. Does that resonate with you? Are you seeing something similar? I think that piece around 
that you mentioned around getting somebody to admit they have a problem and accept the magnitude of it and actually say, yo, I need help with this. Yeah. I think a lot of people often struggle and they'll say, well, they're a poor fit. Are they a poor fit or have we just collectively not done a great job of extracting the pain, understanding how large it is, understanding the intent and also building enough trust and positioning ourselves as an advisor for them to truly say, you know what, I do need help. Because the truth is, is I don't know about you all of it. If I don't trust somebody, there is no way I'm opening up. Even if I need help, there is no way I'm opening up. I'm going to tell you my deepest, darkest secrets, right? We've all got that friend who has the big mouth, right? You tell them one thing and it goes everywhere. The next time they ask you how you are, you're like, I'm good. I'm good, man. How are you? What's up with you, right? You're never going <laughs> to tell them how you truly feel because you know, you don't trust them. So I think it's interesting on that piece. That's what came up for me there when you were talking. I was like, ah, that's something I personally see a lot in teams I train. Cut. Pause or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead and story selling is alive. Because if you really want to build trust, stand out and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www theraviregiani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. And if there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. What I found very interesting around the justification piece was how you use data with storytelling to ultimately showcase a better world. So you said you're very lucky with Paddle because it's quite easy to quantify could you talk to that for a second? What do you mean and how do you position it on calls? Yeah, so because Paddle, like our model, our merchant of record model, our do it for you, essentially, like we can actually quantify the tools that we would replace. Like this stuff's on our website as well, right? Like you can see how our pricing would stack up to the cost of doing this like piecemeal. So there's two options for your payment infrastructure. You do it yourself and you stitch all these tools together and you spend loads of time and effort doing that. And naturally, if you have to buy six, seven tools, each of those together will cost you more, right? It's just the natural law of anything, buying anything individually versus like a wholesale cost almost, if you want to view it that way. We can normally say, this is how much you're probably paying. This is how much you will pay, depending on how this infrastructure typically has to grow as you grow, or you just do it in this one thing. Here's all the things that that provides. And here's the cost of that for you based on your transaction volume, based on what you've been doing so far, this is the potential cost and revenue uplift of doing that. But people still have to believe that. Like it's still a really logical argument. The numbers are there, they're hard numbers. You still have to know that that's how much you're paying for that tool or know that 
actually, yeah, I have two headcount manually doing this thing that realistically there's a better way of doing and I could repurpose them and they could have a better life and a better career and personal growth if we just had something that could do that for us automatically. Like some people are really resistant to change, especially in this environment, especially in scale-ups and startups that we work with. Like there's a lot of risk right now in that industry in general. So it's not just about, can I get uplift? It's like, is that risk or that change worth that money? And that's where that emotional side of it has to come. They have to believe that that change and that effort is worth that revenue uplift or that cost reduction. So that piece on believability, I'm really curious to know the answer to this question. What is the root cause? So you've kind of mentioned it as to the risk in the world of startups, but is there anything else going on? And what is the underlying root cause of a lack of believability? It's a really interesting question that I have more hypotheses about than probably solid answers. Hit me with the hypotheses. Hit me with the hypotheses. I want to know. I want to know. Yeah. You said something earlier around trust, right? Like, Mm. do they trust the person presenting these numbers to them? And champion building is a really important part of that. Like any business case, whether it's sales or whether it's not, right? Like in consulting days, internally, if I'm building a business case, like you have to give people input, you have to co-create it because otherwise they're going to have no idea how you got there. And they're going to be like, you made that number up. Like, it's really easy to type a number into a slide and claim a win, right? So it's, have you co-created it? Have you gone together on that journey? And that part, that is the trust that you were talking about. I think the other thing, and you actually said something about this earlier in our conversation, there is so much noise. There is so much noise on LinkedIn. There is so much noise coming from VC newsletters, obviously, which mostly should be trusted, from the media in general about how you should make decisions, how you should not make decisions. Now's the right time to buy. It's the wrong time to buy. You should buy this way. You should buy that way. You should be focusing on this. You should be focusing on that. And it's just in a time when people's brains are like slightly more stressed than usual, general cost of living, economic situation, what's going on in the world, their ability to consume, filter through and rationalize some of that is naturally diminished. So you've got to help them. Like you've got to help people determine what they can or should pay attention to and help them work through some of that. But going back to trust, they're only going to tell you that they're worried about those things or they can't figure out that decision if they trust you and they actually trust that you're going to help them make the right decision. Like obviously people know that a salesperson wants to sell to them, but do they trust that if this is the wrong solution for you, that they will tell you? And like, that's what true advisory sales, right? Like, will you actually tell me that this is the wrong thing? Oh, so much goodness in there. And I'll tell you what was coming up for me as you were talking was one of the biggest issues I see when reps share customer success stories is the lack of context about the transformation. Mm. So you can't tell Cisco, I'm going to help you increase your bottom line by 48%. They're going to, it's not believable, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, is it, it's like, get off the phone, right? Okay. Thank you. No, thank you. But can you tell an early stage startup who's finding product market fit? Yeah. Maybe, 
right? Maybe very, very different. So I think there's the believability in the data, but here's, here's the crazy thing, Ola. I'm this type of freak. I don't know if you're this type of freak, right? You tell me, but if I taste a protein bar, okay, and it tastes bad, I'm secretly like, oh, this must be good for me. But if it tastes too good, I'm like, Mm-mm, like, no, this can't, this can't be good for me. And I can't remember where I heard this. You, you can't quote me on it, people. But I think it was on the Stephen Bartlett's podcast, Diary of a CEO. And they were saying that he was saying that the product Huel, they ensured that it didn't taste too good because then people wouldn't believe that it's good for you, right? So it's so interesting. And as I said, don't quote me on that. I wish I could tell you the exact episode, but it blew my mind. So I don't know. Are you are you one of those weirdos as well? Or am I sitting on this island alone? So I can see that because I know a lot of people who drink Huel. <laughs> but as I say to them, I'd rather just actually have a meal. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not one of those people who knows it because I'd rather just have some chicken or an egg than a protein bar. <laughs> Okay, let me ask you this then. If if you <laughs> ate, uh, let's take it back. Let's take it to, mm, I don't know how to relate it to chicken and eggs. So I'm just going to move <laughs> away from this conversation like it didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, sensible, but, sensible. But I, I think you know where I'm going with it. And it's, yeah, this believability piece is so key, actually. Really true. And actually, how much of it do you think boils down to a lack of self-trust in themselves? Really interesting question. Definitely some of it. Like especially if you're a, a newer rep, right, and you've been onboarded and you've been indoctrinated into the company mantra and you've had all the messaging and positioning, training and everything else. Like, have you, depending on who you are, right, this is very much some people will completely take that on board, be like, this is absolutely true and just really drive forward with it without any evidence because they're maybe they're not skeptical like I am, right, and I want my evidence and I want my proof and everything so I think if if you're that person you're fine which sometimes maybe creates some risk with the customer because they're like well how do you know this is true it's like because someone told me like it's kind of not a really a good enough answer on the other side I've definitely seen reps and actually more at a strategic level where they're quite experienced like maybe they've been burned before maybe they are more consultative and advisory driven. If something's new, like a product's new, you're entering a new market, you're trying to launch to a new segment and you don't have that real conviction that you have 50, 60, 100, 10,000 people who have gone and done this before, then you're like, yeah, I can kind of maybe talk to you about an example where maybe someone did this. And some people will give themselves away in their tone or how quickly they share something or that kind of thing. But again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because being upfront about the fact that, yeah, this is a new market. So actually, I can't give you a thousand different examples, but here's the work we put into research of the product or product development or something else that has shown us that this genuinely will add value and of the people we have here's what it looks like. Do you want to talk to them? Like there's many other ways to build that trust as well. If someone's got the conviction to know when they might or might not be BSing a bit. I love your, the way you think about things actually, because it's not just, as we said at the beginning, it's not just hardcore data, but you clearly 
you have done inner work on yourself through coaching, but also you pull on everything from the world of neuroscience and everything you did at psychology and you bring it into the sales world. Like you're noticing these subtleties around tone and conviction. I don't think everybody does that. So I love that. I love that. And you know what was coming up for me as you were talking was on that piece of self-trust. I think on the flip side, a prospect, if they don't deeply trust either the product, the salesperson or the company, right, that's clearly a no-go, but actually themselves to implement and themselves to actually pull it off. You know, like they don't want to look bad internally, right? They don't want to get fired. They don't want their neck on the line. So I think that's another important skill is to really champion the champion and make them look great. Yeah, it's so true. When I I was buying a CMS LMS tool last year, I had a very specific budget to do it quite quickly. Times were a bit different as well. And I was very, very conscious. Like I was new into the company. If I made the wrong decision, if I spent too much money, if it didn't add value for the team, like I was like, this could be the thing that does me in like in my probation period, you know, it is that uh, you don't want to be the joker that made the wrong decision really early on you didn't understand the context of the company or you didn't ask people enough like you didn't bring people on the journey that I think people wildly underplay that like they underplay does the champion believe in it are they willing to put their neck on the line and also do they actually have the influence to make that decision or get that decision made as well and I think the latter one I'm sure you've used this term, like people get happy is because sometimes people like to overstate their influence or their significance. Um, And then if you haven't tested that champion, get to the end and you're like, why did the CFO say no? It's like that person had no right to be making that decision and they didn't trust their recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, such a good point, especially that piece around FOMU, right? Fear of messing up. Yeah. You really don't want to be messing up, especially around probation time. I mean, kudos to you for embedding a new tool around that time. Did it it go well or not? Oh, it did. It went really well. Everyone was really happy. And I took a sigh of relief. (laughs) (laughs) That's a dream scenario. Are you just saying that because we're on a podcast and when we get in the green room, you're going to be like, listen, it bombed. I have Slack messages to prove it, Ravi. You know, it it went well. It was a good choice. We're going to put those in the show notes, okay? We're going to put those Slack messages in the show notes to ensure we can justify (laughs) this emotional hypothesis, my friend. Uh, One of the AUs posted about it on LinkedIn. She loved it. She even posted about it. All right, I believe you. I believe you. There's believability in what you're saying. It's good. It's good. So listen, my friend, what that's proof. That's proof. What I'd love to one of the questions I'd love to end with is let's go back to that scenario of that human being who is a seller at a company who identifies a blockage. They then start integrating the right skills to remove that blockage. They are practicing, they're trying to create true change around it. How does a leader incentivize that new behavior so they don't revert back to habits that weren't serving them? Incentivize the the salesperson to adopt that new change. Is that the question? Yeah. 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 Like, is it a shift in comp? Is it a spiff? I don't know. Is it something non-monetary related? Like, what would you think is a good way to really incentivize true change in the long term? It definitely depends on what it is, right? If it is something related to like, you want to change 
the types of deals people are booking, right? You want to have more margin, create more profitable deals, like, yeah, maybe give the AE a skin in the game, change their compensation plan, give them an accelerator, something like that. That's always going to drive a change because they have to focus on something else and it affects the take home pay. But that's also sometimes the easy answer. I'm like, oh, we'll just, I don't know, we'll link a portion of their comp to it. It's like, but would, okay. sometimes I'm like, can they just gain that? Like I've seen so many stats be gained, so many mm. elements of comp plan be gained. I'm like, what is it you're really trying to do? And it really does depend on the behavior of your team. I'm very lucky I work with a fantastic sales team who really want to evolve, really want to grow, and they are hungry to learn. So I'm very lucky in that I don't have to work too hard for them to adopt something that they understand the value of. But that's my point. Like they is the thing that you're trying to do. Have you got a clear why it matters for them? Why will it make them more successful? Why will it help them increase their quota attainment, right? Or increase their win rate or help their productivity, help them work less hours because it's easier to do it this way. Like if you've got a clear customer focused, almost like benefit, then it should be fairly easy for them to adopt the change. If you're doing it for your reporting, for your management team's reporting, for something internally that has absolutely nothing to do with the AE and what they do every day, then you're probably going to have to do something a bit harder, like it's mandatory or, you know, link some element of comp to it because there's no there's no pull to do it. So it's like, is there a pull or is there a push? That's kind of how I see it to a degree. And my preference is always this is why it matters for you. This is why it makes a difference for you. This is why it will make your life better, easier, financially more profitable, like one of those kind of things. Yeah, I love that end piece around anchoring, getting somebody to really unlock their why and help them understand the impact of this new behavior and how it will bring them closer in alignment to that vision. So I love that piece. I love that. I think one thing that we haven't touched upon here, which I'd love to get your real brief take on is if somebody realizes they need to be a better storyteller, communicator, presenter, and they start taking the steps to practice those skills, a one and done workshop does not cut it, right? How do you get people to practice relentlessly? So let me give you an example. You know, I always tell people Kevin Hart takes 12 to 18 months to come up with one hour's worth of comedy material. So a one-off workshop and crafting a story like that and thinking it's going to pop, you really got to think like a world-class performer or an athlete. So what's your take on it? What's your go-to at Paddle for really embedding that skill set into what well, embedding well getting somebody world class in that skill set is probably a better way of putting it. So we get each of our reps to pick one thing that they want to focus on per month or per quarter. Oh okay. Depending on how quickly they can do it. So it's like strength, turn your strengths into superpowers, turn your development points into just like areas where you don't suck, basically. Um kind of pick pick one at a time so that it's really easy to focus on it and then find the best way you learn. So do a workshop by all means. If it's podcasts, listen to a bunch of podcasts, schedule some role plays with your manager, with me, with your team. Like we'll give you feedback because we know what you're what you're working on and set time aside to do it. So the best reps who are working on this at the moment, a lot of them have like 15 minute blocks, some daily, some do an hour a week, but they figured out what works for them. And they're either reading, they're watching videos or listening to podcasts and 
because we know what they're working on, like I will review a gone call and give them feedback specifically on it. So will their manager. Like it's much easier for us to help them on that change, but they own it. They know that that's their development and that's their thing. And they found a repeatable way to actually make incremental progress. What I love the most about what you said is the cadence piece of one person deciding they want to do it 15 minutes per day and the other person saying, hey, I'm going to commit to one hour a week. And it's really funny. Sometimes we say this is this is the only way of doing it. But truth is, is when you empower people to figure it out for themselves and what works for them, it does beautiful things. So I love that. I love that. And it does pose the question, what is one thing that you're personally struggling with right now in creating change around? And where are you at with it? We are doing a lot of work around how we communicate value. So talked about that. It's a struggle because it's complex. Like what we do is complex and communicating value is requires storytelling. It requires trust building. It requires champion building. It requires curiosity, requires the right questions, the right assets. Like it requires a lot to do one seemingly small thing. So that is something that we have spent a lot of time on and will spend a lot more time on. And it's like, how do you consistently reinforce what you've done and not get distracted? Like it's really hard in sales. There's always something every quarter that comes up. So the distraction point is a big thing of like, we have to come back to it. No, we're focusing on this. We're not doing that. And then figure out what the next thing is that's going to help us make step change. I hear you, my friend. I like that from a paddle perspective. And what about from an Orla perspective outside of paddle? My perspective, what am I trying to change? Or create? Yeah. Behavioral change in or reinforce something, something that you're willing to share, obviously, and have processed, et cetera. Yeah. I think for me, actually, I'm more just trying to keep building up my enablement specific skill set and my sales skills. Like, even though I'm not in a sales role, I believe that I should still be working on sales skills so that I can empathize with people. And ra- yeah. like, I'm actually trying not to make too many big changes to my life this year because I like moved house, moved job, like a bunch of things over the last few years. I haven't really been still. So I'm more trying to master a craft yes, in that way yeah, and focus on where that could take me next rather than try and make too many big changes. Got you. We'll see how it goes. It's April and I'm already hungry for a change. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Got you. Got you. So it sounds as though it's less about... I need to paint the wall behind me, you know, all sorts. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, you are in a position where you have to, as you said, focus on the sales skills because the beauty is it's going to help you understand your sellers more and all that good stuff. So what a gift to to really have because you get to focus on you and in turn bring that goodness to the people that you need to impact at work. I love it, my friend. I love it. So there we have it, ladies and gents. Orla Pollard. Orla, listen, this show is called The Influential Communicator. And I always like to ask guests as we wrap up, who is one person that you specifically look up to as an influential communicator and why? He'll laugh if he hears this. A paddler I work with, our chief customer officer, it's called Rob. And Rob is famous for his metaphors. Absolutely famous for them. Oh. He is extremely good at finding the right metaphor on the spot to absolutely exemplify the challenge or the problem or how we might attack something. And also really disarm people. 
Like he takes what is fundamentally probably a criticism, uses a metaphor, and then people are like, yes, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. And it's just such an art and really entertaining and everyone could listen to it all day. That's definitely someone that I look up to, his ability to just on the spot, think of the right way to convey the information, match the tone and help people see what they need to, but just wrapped into a metaphor. Mm, nothing better than a good metaphor or anecdote. And if you can improv, I mean, kudos. Rob, if you're listening Brilliant. to this, kudos, my man. Kudos. I love it. I love it. <laughs> He'll have a book one day. Do you reckon? He'll have a book on it? Well, we're trying to. We keep trying to persuade him to. A to Z of sales metaphors, I think. <laughs> <laughs> go for it, Rob. Go for it, brother. There's definitely a market for it, my man. Uh, Ola, where can people go to learn more about you and what you're up to over at Paddle? Uh, LinkedIn's the best place to find me, connect with me, message me. Yeah. There we have it. So ladies and gents, listen, I haven't asked for you. If you enjoyed today's episode and you're listening to this right now on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you're listening to this, do me a favor, okay? Take a snapshot and hit us up on LinkedIn. Tag myself, tag Orla, and let us know your biggest golden nugget from today's episode. We will come back to you. We promise you on that. All right. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place for another episode. All right. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value so hey the more the word gets out about this podcast the more people we can gather on this mission so if you could support me then hey that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right. I'll see you on the other side.